You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. I'm going to introduce Frank like you've heard, and um, it's like, where do I begin? I'll just begin with some statements. Uh, Frank uh, was not a farmer, and he is today a farmer. Uh, he's a husband, and uh, he's a father to uh, two children. And over the years, um, Frank has spoken directly uh, into my life, um, prophetically, and uh, has been a, a huge uh, encouragement for me. And he's a man that is filled with faith in the Lord. And I, I'm not going to give away your testimony, but I think that will come out. And he's a man that has um, put his trust completely in the Lord and has seen uh, God come through in his life. So it's a privilege to be able to introduce you, Frank, and uh, I'm going to pray. So, Lord, we um, it's already been said uh, today the, the magnitude and the necessity of gathering um, as men before you. And it's already been mentioned today regarding uh, the need for us to be vulnerable. And I know that that's going to come out today, Lord. We thank you for that. And I pray, Jesus, um, that as you speak through Frank, that your name would be honored. You be glorified. And I pray that us as men, Lord, would be receptive to what you have for us, to the encouragement, uh, the correction, whatever it is that you're going to reveal to us today, Lord, through Frank, so that we can walk a stronger walk in you, God. And like Chuck said... So we can lead the generation that's coming up behind us. Yes. Amen. We pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Joe. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I can hear. I can hear that I'm on. It's encouraging. <laughs> uh, our God is a personal God, and I plan on being pretty personal with you guys this morning. And uh, He's also an active God, an active God who opens doors. So here we go. When I was a kid, I loved football, like a lot of you guys probably when you were little. And uh, I was around six or seven, and I was raised in a house that didn't appreciate football. So I had to find my own avenue to find football. And one of the ways I finally found it um, was on Sunday mornings. And it was before all the regular games started. I was raised in the early 60s, and in those days, no internet, right? It was TV that turned on three channels, 3, 10, and 13. I grew up in Woodland, and it was an old TV. My dad never had the highest tech stuff. So I found out that they used to replay Notre Dame games first thing in the morning. And uh, it was year-round, which was pretty cool, because you could get up early in the morning, and uh, it would be year-round. It wouldn't just be during the season. They'd play the regular games from the day before on Saturdays, and then on Sundays they'd replay them without all the huddles. It was actually a pretty quick little game. Uh, and then during the rest of the year, it would be just the highlights and the bowl games, because Notre Dame, you know, Notre Dame ended up becoming their own network eventually. And this was probably the beginning of it. So I'd get up really early, race to the refrigerator, grab that cold, crispy Kentucky Fried Chicken from the night before. Little boys love that. And I'd pull that end table up right next to the TV. And then probably you guys used to do this too, about that far away, and get real close. And I would wait, wait for that game to come on. And... In the process, you'd have to watch whatever was on those, on, the, on those three stations, right? And there's only one thing on Sunday mornings. There was no cartoons. No, no, no. That was Captain Delta Monday through Friday, and then Roadrunner on Saturday. But on Sundays, it was only the preacher man. 
And no matter what station, what time, anything else until those games come on, it was the preacher guys. So I got to know those guys pretty well. I didn't necessarily pay attention to their names, but I listened to their stories. And one common thread between all those shows was at the end of the program, they always told you to bow your head and pray. And being an obedient little boy, I would always bow my head, you know, and just pray. Go along with the preacher guy. And uh, I think I gave my heart to Jesus hundreds of times over those uh, years of watching football. (laughs) And I look back now, of course, uh, and realize that made a connection uh, for me and God early on in my life. And I didn't appreciate it, and I probably didn't even realize it till I became a, a real Christian, whatever that means, right? I mean, I was probably a Christian right then and there, but I didn't understand what that meant. I was just a little kid. So I had this relationship with him. I remember walking to school as a first grader and second grader and a third grader, uh, you know, as you're trying to avoid the cracks, not to break your mama's back, as uh, you're walking to school, and I'd pray about the man I would become. I just remember that very distinctly. Um, not necessarily about praying for toys and things like that. I just prayed about things. So we had this dialogue, I, I remember, and at some point that probably broke off, and I think it happened probably in high school when I developed uh, that root of pride and, and arrogance that comes over a lot of young men. And I'm just speaking for myself, though, because I know a lot of you guys probably avoided that. Um, <laughs> I got it, and I got it good, it's from what I remember, and I, especially, again, looking back. And... Um, it probably came about through, you know, some measly little successes you had in sports or some girl liked you or whatever happened, right? So something developed that in me where it became a pretty strong root, and I didn't, you know, I embraced it, obviously. That was something uh, young guys do, and certainly I did. When I got out of college, I uh, took a job offer, and back in those days, you actually got job offers out of college, and, and I had several, actually, which was, I came out of Davis, and uh, I took the least of all of them uh, because of a couple things. Went to Los Angeles. That was a primary goal of mine. I knew a lot of people that, were, that came up to Davis out of L.A., and most of them were really cute girls. And uh, I got to admit that that was a primary reason I went to Los Angeles, really, was to, to meet girls. But also, this company had number one market share in the retail trade. And that also, I understood enough about that to, to think that that would be cool to attach yourself to a company that called themselves number one, right? That pride and arrogance thing. So went down there and started a job as a trainee. And uh, <clears throat> we were in the buying offices. And out of my group of 30 that was in my training class, 27 were girls from all over the country, Harvard, Yale, uh, UCLA, SC, uh, Davis, of course, Berkeley. I mean, they, they had a, a large uh, draw um, for a lot of reasons. They, because they were number one in the marketplace, because they had new stores, they had a lot of things that attracted kids uh, to their place. So I was in this uh, one office as a brand-new trainee with a goofy suit and a goofy pair of shoes, you know, and uh, because there was no real importance to my job as a trainee, they put my desk right next up against the wall, to the door that led out into the big hallway. And this is a big, big building that had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, young people working there. And so it was a great spot to be because you could see everybody walk by the door. Everybody. And you got to say hi to your friends. You got to stare at people. You got to connect with people. And uh, my main job was to get copies, go get coffee, you know, go to the mailroom. So there was really no importance to anything I was doing, especially as a trainee. All the important people were deep in the office doing brainy stuff. And eventually, um, 
over a couple of days' time being in there, one day this girl walks by my door. And, you know, it's just a little portal, about that big, right? 30 inches. And that, you guys who are contractors, 30 inches, 32 inches. So in that portal, this girl walks by one day. She looks at me, and I look at her, and we have this immediate lock, eye lock, chemistry. And I said, I haven't seen her before. So she walks by, and, of course, she's got to walk back by. So I'm just waiting and going about my filing or whatever dorky job I was doing. And eventually, she comes back by, and she looks right at me again. We do, this, we do this stare thing. And this went on for several days, if not for a couple of weeks, actually, before one day she comes by, and she gives me that real friendly smile and a little wink. The wink, right? That was what I was waiting for, was that wink. All right? So as she, as she disappears out of my little portal of sight... I give her time. I'm going to jump up too quick. So she gets around the corner. I know right where she's going. Same place as I go to, the mail room, the coffee center, you know. So I jump up, run out the door, and clumsily catch up to her. And she turns around and looks at me. As soon as I get from the podium to here, and she says, she just looks at me, and I said, um, uh, I'd like to go out sometime. And she goes, her response was, it's about time. Right? I never said I was fast. So that was a good sign. We had this immediate chemistry together, and we started dating. And we dated uh, pretty, pretty regularly for the next, next year until she uh, decided um, she had to go back to school. She was not there yet as a graduate. She was there as a clerical and going through uh, another type of school, a trade school. So she moved to San Diego and uh, I ended up quitting that job and got moved up the ladder into a sales job for a company who was selling. Anyways, I moved to Colorado. So we had this long-distance challenge between the two of us. And that's always not easy to do, to get through that. But we did. And uh, over the next year and a half, we dated. And I eventually asked her to marry me. So we got married. She moved to Colorado. And I started developing this... Uh, this work ethic that our company culture really embraced, and that was to work your tail off, to work hard, to, uh, to travel a lot within your territory, to go to New York when you were called to do, which we did a lot. And I frankly um, was still really too mature to be married. I still had the college mentality in my head. I was not a good husband. I didn't nurture the relationship. I didn't pay attention to the relationship. I paid more attention to my customers and to anything else, everything else except her. And that became part of our marriage uh, in the beginning. And uh, my main goal was to get the golden ring. And the golden ring to me was to get back to L.A. and back to where real money was being made. I was in Colorado, which was a small territory. So everything about my company told us to, to buy the big house, buy the big car, just keep moving forward. Just keep grasping at the next thing. And uh, the company was really based in New York, so these were all New Yorkers. They were very aggressive people. And it didn't really sit well with a lot of California people, but these were my bosses. So you had to embrace that mentality. Otherwise, you weren't going to move anywhere. So I let it be known that I wanted to get back to L.A. as fast as I can. About four years into that part of my life, that opportunity opened up to get back to L.A., and uh, I got the job. And 
and that really, um, I, I switched into another gear. The other gear was to um, focus less on the marriage and focus less on the relationship and to, and to focus more on the job. It got to a point where she, my wife, would even invite people over for dinner, and I'd be away on purpose, or I'd be away working. I wouldn't come home. And it got pretty obnoxious, I'm sure, from her point of view. And she would try to talk to me about it and try to talk about our relationship. And I used everything I was learning in my sales job to redirect, misdirect, mislead, look over here, you know, just something else other than to talk about what she wanted to talk about. And um, I could see, um, well, from my perspective, everything was just great. We were making loads of money. We were, um, we'd bought a house in Huntington Beach, a a little pool house, three-bedroom, two-bath, a couple of miles from the beach. And as soon as we bought that house, I started looking at buying another house and uh, and working harder to attain that house. We were married about two years, uh, about three years altogether when we were, I'm sorry, we were married four years when we were back in Huntington Beach. And um, our marriage was, we were still really good friends. I just wasn't taking care of the marriage. And you can put a lot of things into that that you wish, and any of it would be true. When uh, I, found this, I found this property down at the beach, and we started building a new house. And uh, that became my next goal. Besides building my territory and making more money, building this house was more important than, than anything else to me. And that detracted even further from our marriage. When it was finally done, we were going to rent the old house and move into the new one. And uh, my wife wanted really nothing to do with this new house. She realized it was just another distraction. We moved in the new house, and it wasn't probably eight months before she came up to me one day and said, I want a divorce. I said, a divorce? Really? From me? <laughs> I'm such a catch. Um, look at all I'm doing for you. you know, and that's, that was the complete mentality that I had at the time, was everything that I'm doing, I'm doing for you. And I would use all those same excuses that I thought would work before, that had worked before, but this time she'd have none of it. She was, she was tired of my, my whole shtick by then. And when she said those words to me, something came up in me almost immediately and said, this is exactly what you want. This is exactly what you need, Frank. This is something that's been welling up in you. You've probably even thought this before on your own. A divorce is exactly what we need here in this situation. And... Uh, I guess because that was the easier mentality to, to embrace, I embraced it. And I looked at it like another task on my to-do list. And I thought, you want a divorce? Fine. Let's get a divorce. I mean, how many times have you heard people say that? So, of course, there was no talking about this. It was going to be a done deal. She, uh, she moved back to the old house. We stopped talking. And I was in the big house. I gave her all the furniture because that was going to be an easier way to get this thing done. So there I was in this big old house, empty, cold because it was near the beach, and hollow. And it was just like me, empty and hollow. You could walk on the floors of that bottom level and you could hear the echo clear up to the third level. It was a three-story house at the beach. And here she was a couple miles away and we stopped talking completely. 
I uh, jumped on the phone, found a divorce attorney in California. There's plenty of them. Didn't take long to find one that could make this happen pretty quick. So I called him up. He says, give me a 1000 bucks. We can get this thing done fast. I said, no problem. Here it is. And uh, so his next job was for me to have division of assets, right? That's easy. I can do that. I'm going to give her everything she wants. We can get this thing done even faster. So he said, I'll call you, call you in a little while. I'll call you back when I get it all taken care of. I said, fine. So she started living her life, and I started living my life apart from each other. Probably two months go by, and I get a call from this guy, and he says, uh, the papers are ready. All you got to do is pick them up, have her sign them. You're ready to go. I mean, how simple is that, right? So easy. So I started devising in my head, how am I going to make this happen? Quick. Um, there's got to be a payoff here for me somewhere, right? Somewhere. I'm doing all the work on this. So I started thinking about how I was going to give her the papers. What dastardly way could I figure this out now? So I called her up, told her I was going to swing by and give her the divorce papers. And uh, she'd know I'd be there on time. So I show up exactly when I said it was going to be. And I had a couple of, couple of agendas in my mind that I was going to do. Um, pull up in front of the house, have those papers, walk up, and she knew I'd be there, drop them on the doorstep, turn around, and just walk away. Right? She would just see the back of my shirt. How cool would that be? The other one was knock on the door, let her answer the door, right? Let her see me, like she's going to say good riddance to you, <laughs> and hand them to her and just walk away. Those are the two plans, really, really creative plans. <laughs> wouldn't have to talk to her, wouldn't have to say anything. The silence would be deafening, right? So I show up exactly on time. I figure she's probably standing at the door. Right? The song's about you, right? So she's, she's, she's standing at the door looking at the people, probably, right? Yeah, you think. So I walk up the doorway, I walk up the walkway, and I'm getting close to the door, and all of a sudden, something else rises up in me. And that voice that I hadn't heard ever before, the voice of reason, said, Frank, what are you doing? You can change this. We can still fix this. It's not too late. I'm thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute now. We're in this way too deep now. We're not changing anything. We're moving forward with this. And that voice kept coming back up. Don't do it. You're making a huge mistake. And I just took that voice and just pushed it down as hard as I could. I'm thinking, we're going forward with this. There's no way I'm backing out now. I mean, I'm a guy who plans things. I've got a plan here. This is a, this is a plan, and I'm going to execute it. There's no way I'm going to back out. I get to the door, and I freeze. And I, my hand raises up, and I ring the doorbell. It was like an out-of-body experience. The doorbell was not on the plan. <laughs> the knock was the plan. Or to toss him on the ground, right? She opens the door, and I'm standing there, not really expecting that. And I'm off, my, I'm off the game now. I'm off the game plan. Completely messed up. And I'm just standing there in awkward silence. And out of my mouth comes, can I come in? Can I come in? That's not the plan. <laughs> what are you going to do when you get in? I'm thinking. 
she looks at me like, there's no way I'm going to let you in. I know who you are, right? I think she probably was going through her mind. Maybe he's got to show me where to sign or something. So she steps out of the way. I walk in the house. She closes the door, and I'm in the house now, and I'm thinking, what are you doing in the house? This is not the plan. And all of a sudden, I said, can we just sit down and talk? She walks to the other end of the room. Our living room was maybe half the size, but she walked as far away from me as possible and sat in a sofa way over there. And as is my style, I sat in the chair by the door in case things started coming my way. So we sat there again just for a little minute, a little awkward silence again, and before you knew it, we started talking, reminiscing, talking about the house, talking about Colorado, talking about our first dog together. There were no kids involved at this point, so your dog is your kid, right? And we, we, all of a sudden we started reminiscing about all kinds of things. And about 40 minutes into our conversation, we, were, we split the room in half. I, was, I came halfway, she came halfway. We were actually sitting on the same sofa within about 45 minutes. And there was some laughter, there was some tears, and there was even a moment we were holding hands, talking. And after a while, everything just felt so comfortable. Something so different had come over us, over me. And I asked her on a date. So would you go on one, one date with me? And she thought it was crazy. She uh, thought about it, and she said, dramatic pause. <laughs> she said she would on one condition, and that one condition would be, we'd go on that date, it'd be one date, and it'd be as if we'd never met before. That's smart. That's smart of her. Because that means I have to prove myself. I said, sure, I'll take that. I'll take that date, and uh, let's see what happens. So I grabbed my evil little divorce papers, pick them up, and scurry out of the house. When I left that place, when I left that house, my old house, going back to the big empty house, I realized something changed in me that day. And I started reconnecting back to God. And I started praying that God would change me. I recognized there was something wrong with me. There was something wrong in here. I was so brash. I'd become like a New Yorker. <laughs> And I didn't like it. I'm a California guy. What, what is this? And I just I, I started just praying that God would change me. And I didn't know exactly what to say or what to do. Nobody really taught me that part. Only, I only had what I could rely on and lean on, which is what my, when I was a little kid, right? And that was enough. So we went on that date. We had a great time. It was going to be a, and she made it very clear, this was going to be a purely platonic relationship if we were going to do this. And uh, I earned a second date, and I earned a third date, and I, we even went on a fourth date. And things were very casual. We were just friendly. We were just talking, getting to know each other all over again, just talking, just going out, hanging out. As my son says, we're just hanging out, Dad. That's all we're doing, just hanging out. <laughs> so, so we went. Yeah, Joe. <laughs> Anyways... 
we, uh, I finally got enough courage to ask her away for a weekend. And, uh, and I told her, this would be completely, as it's been, very casual, but let's get away. Let's, let's go into Santa Barbara where we have a lot of good times, a lot of memories up there. So we did so. And um, we stayed at a place called the Yield Yacht Club, which was a very, very familiar, very comfortable place we could stay. And things were going to be completely platonic still. And I had reservations at our favorite restaurant and brought our bags into the room. And we were getting ready to go to dinner. And she goes, before we go, we need to talk, Frank. I'm going, talk. There's that talk thing again, you know. It's a part I wasn't very good at in our marriage. And I don't think I'm very good at it still. <laughs> the talk, because you know that's going to be this heavy talk. You guys can relate. Had talks with your girlfriends, your wives. They like to talk. So, so I said, yeah, let's talk. We're going to talk. So she sits me down, and I could tell this was going to be a very important talk. Like, this could be a make-or-break talk, because we hadn't done this in all these dates. We'd just been reconnecting. And she said, very simply, very simple question, what's going to be different this time around if we actually continue to see each other? What's going to be different, Frank? I went in this hole, like I usually do, when you get asked these kinds of questions that pertain to your emotions, to your heart. That's not how I was raised. That's not how I was trained. It's not my mindset. My mindset is a doer, a taskmaster. Get things done. To relate to myself or to relate to her was a very difficult proposition, but she wanted to know where I was at and what I thought was going to be the difference. And as I fell deeper into this hole, I knew that if I said the wrong thing, that could change everything. It could wipe out all the progress we made. Because the usual thing would be, you know, look over here, right? Redirect, mislead, live, need be. And uh, the silence was deafening. It was absolute deafening to me. And she was just waiting patiently. Picture this. I felt like I was in this well. And 100 feet up was the surface. And that's where she was. And I was deep in this hole. And the longer the silence went, it felt like I was digging the hole even deeper. And then all of a sudden, I heard a voice start talking. And it was my voice talking. And this is hard to believe, you guys, but it's true. I could hear myself speaking. And as I'm hearing my voice speak, I'm thinking, that sounds pretty good. I should write this down. I may have to need this some other time in the future. I go, that's incredible. Whatever he's saying, I realize that's me saying it. And what I was hearing was I was telling her all the things that she was afraid of. All the things that she had fear about me, about our relationship. It was as if I was looking into her heart and talking about what she was feeling. It went on for 45 seconds or so, not long, just, but it was succinct. I couldn't do that. I know that wasn't me, by the way. There's no way I could connect or make those words even come together. Even preparing for this, I could hardly pull them together. It just, in fact, the Holy Spirit helped me figure out exactly what I was saying that day. And when I finished talking, she says, I've been waiting since we've been married to hear you say something like that. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely incredible. 
God opening doors. I look back at that moment, I realized he opened the door on the walkway to get me in the house. He opened the door at this very moment, and I realized I got a connection to him now. This is, this is different than how I normally feel. This is, this is I was so, so um, I was ecstatic, to be honest with you. So we, uh, we had a great time. We went back home um, after a day, and um, all of a sudden things really turned around in our relationship. In fact, that next week, I got a phone call from her. First time I received a call from her since the day she walked out the door. She'd never called me, never made an overture to even contact me, nothing. And now the phone's ring. The phone rings, and it's her. And I pick up the phone, and she's inviting me on a date, inviting me to come to her house for dinner. I'm thinking, this is awesome. This is great. She cooks good, too. I think this is going to be really good. <laughs> it's going to be better than a restaurant. So I was pretty happy. I was pretty, I was pretty jazzed. So I show up, of course, right on time. That's what I do. And I got a, flowers and a bottle of wine. And she opens the door. And I look through the foyer where she's standing. She looks fabulous. I look through the family room and into the kitchen. And I see these two tall flutes of bubbles bubbling away, champagne. I go, this is going to be killer. This is going to be a great night. I walk in the house. We walk over there. She makes a toast to us. It's the first, again, real overture she's made about us, our relationship. And she makes a toast. We tip it back. As I tip the glass back, I look at the bottom of the glass, and there's something in the bottom of my glass. It was my wedding ring. The wedding ring that I'd stopped wearing probably six months into our marriage. I'd stopped wearing it because I felt it would help my business. I was such a cad. A lot of things I did that I regret today. But at that moment, when I saw that ring, and she said, will you marry me again? Every one of you guys got to find a way to get your wives to, to propose to you. Because that, now you know, now I know why, and then I realized too, how, how awesome that is to have somebody love you so much to want to ask you to marry them. And that's where we were again. We were right back to where we were but this time, it was real. The first time, not so much, at least in my mind. This time, it was a recommitment. It was the real deal. And I was like a, a giddy schoolgirl getting proposed to. It was phenomenal. So we celebrated. We had a wonderful several days. We were back together again. We arranged for, her to, for us to move back together again. And we did. And uh, we were going to celebrate by going away on a real honeymoon this time. So we were going to go to Italy. And my business was rolling. I was saving a lot of money, and we were going to go to Europe all the way. We were going to go first class. We were going to have a lot of fun. And back in those days, there was no Internet, right? So how would you contact people in Europe? We sent faxes out. So you found out where to go via magazines. <laughs> Remember magazines? They used to be at a, at a newsstand. And uh, you would find places to go, and you'd send them out via fax. So I sent out maybe 20 or so fax transmissions, they're called. And, uh, and you wait for responses. There's no immediate, you know, yeah, okay, you're in. So it takes patience. And one day I get this phone call from a guy out of nowhere, and he's got this English accent, and he says, 
you don't know me, my name's Paul, and uh, I, we were, we were uh, in one of the inns when your, your inquiry arrived, and I'm here to tell you that I, I, we, we we're neighbors, we live right down the street, believe it or not, and um, I mean, what are the odds? And he goes, we're going we're gonna, to, um, I have all the information for that particular inn, plus anywhere else you'd like to know about Italy, we just spent a month there, and uh, we can tell you all about it and give you some tips. I said, that sounds awesome, that sounds great, I'm all in. He goes, and also, by the way, we have some tickets for you if you'd like to join us at this very special uh, event I'm hosting at the Ritz-Carlton, which had just opened up in Laguna Niguel, and it was the crown jewel now of Southern California, the Ritz-Carlton in Laguna Niguel. And uh, he says it's the greatest seven tete cuvées of the world all compared against each other, which I didn't know what that meant, but it meant that they were the seven greatest champagnes in the world, and they're going to all be... Um, all the producers were going to be there, and it was going to be really exciting. I thought, heck yeah, I'm all in. So we show up there, we become fast friends, and we become best friends. And over the next several months, we hang out together all the time. And this guy had the same territory I did, which was L.A., so his customers were guys like Wolfgang Puck and all the other big celebrity chefs of the 80s and 90s. So anybody in the world who wanted to sell wine had to go through my friend Paul and uh, he started stopping by my house after work and bringing samples by, just what was left of the day, and he started teaching me about wine. He would teach me what the labels meant. He taught me about the flavors, about the nuances of regions throughout the whole world. I mean, I was a, it was fascinating to me, and I got pulled in all the way, and it was becoming my new passion. Nine months from the day we got back from Italy, we had a baby girl, and that's Gina for those guys for those who know Gina today. And um, that, was, that was the beginning of everything for us, was changing our lives now. Now we're a family, and now we're locked in. And I was locked in as a, as a dad, as a father, as a husband. And three years later, we have another little kid named Frankie. Some of you guys know him too. He's working today. Sorry, that's why he's not here. He gets a hall pass. He has a brand new job. So Tina quits her job after we have her second child, and she realizes it's a handful to have two little kids. So she's looking around, and she finds this big banner at the local church, VBS, Vacation Bible School. So uh, she stops in. She enrolls them into Vacation Bible School, and it didn't take us long to get pulled in uh, by the wonderful people at that church. Uh, It wasn't long at all before they invited us to come to their uh, home groups, and we did. And it wasn't long before the guys found me and pulled me into their men's group. And that men's group became very, very important to me. It became the impetus for me to take my several next steps in life. They, uh, they were all well-schooled in uh, Scripture, some of them, not all of them. But we talked, just like Chuck was saying, it's, it's a time to be intimate with guys that you would never, ever, ever recognize otherwise. We became very best friends. Our families became best friends. We hung out all the time together. And they saw the passion of wine growing in me to the point that they started praying for me to become a winemaker one day. And I still look back on those days with those guys and all those. We probably were in that church for three years. And uh, I give them a lot of credit for praying me into becoming a winemaker. Like we do here, they made announcements, and the announcement was for this project coming uh, from North Carolina. 
And the project was to learn about the Holy Spirit. And uh, we didn't, T and I didn't understand much about the Holy Spirit, but we wanted to learn. So the conference was going to be a three-day thing, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And we show up on the first night, and we sit in the back just in case it get, gets weird, right? And you can, <laughs> you never know. That's what I remember Steve, Steve said if he used to go to church, he sat in the back row. And I go, I did too. I used to sit in the back row for a while anyways. And uh, after that session, we were blown away by the testimonies, by the real-life experiences that people gave of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And at the end of the night, they offered prayer, just like we do here. So, and there, was a, there had to be a couple hundred people at this event. So we got in line, and we waited for our turn to get to the front of the line. And there was probably six or seven people up in the front praying. And we made our way to the front. And just as it so happened to turn out that as the lead pastor, uh, Brad Long, who was the head of the project, opened up, we were right there, and we moved forward. And... Uh, he was going to pray for us. And we we're just looking to get prayed for the Holy Spirit to get in our lives. And that was the basic prayer. And as we moved forward, and he put his hands on me, as soon as he touched me, I felt heat going through my body. Back of my neck started sweating. My head felt like it was on fire. My body was turning numb. And I thought I was coming down with something like, like that. Like, that's not possible. I got so heavy-headed as he just had his arms around him, he was mumbling something. And I couldn't, I was leaning in, I remember trying to lean in, what's he talking about? And he was praying in tongues, I figured out years later. <laughs> but he, he was mumbling, I was leaning in, trying to hear what he's saying, and I actually thought I was going to fall over. I was so hot. And he started praying in English then, and that's when he said, Lord, break this man's heart gently. And I remember hearing that, thinking, what in the world is he talking about? (laughs) Didn't I just go through that? (laughs) I'm not going backwards, I'm going forward. And I realized later on, he was talking about the big old crust around my heart. It was still there. It still needed to be broken away. It still needed to be open so the Holy Spirit could move into me. He moved his attention to Tina, and he said that she'd be carrying the sword. The sword. I like to carry the sword, right? It's kind of a macho thing to carry. So I had no idea that he was talking about. He was talking about the sword of truth, God's word. And anybody who knows Tina today knows that that was an amazing prophetic word over her. The third thing he said about us was that one day that we'd have a ministry together. And in my mind, of course, like a lot of guys' minds, Malaysia, India, Pakistan, no way, I'm not doing that, Right? Little did we realize God had a much better idea for us. So we walked out of there not completely understanding everything that was in store for us and even what those three words meant. But Tina wrote them down, and we talked about them and had people explain it to us through the years and had people explain. So it's uh, become obvious to us now that those were amazing words that were spoken to us that day. Um, All of a sudden, within my workplace, things turned upside down. I was in charge of, I got promoted to this other position. I was in charge of a division that the company was looking to sell. And all of a sudden, uh, this big, big job I had was, was turning completely around. And we started recognizing that we needed to make a move out of L.A. And uh, raising little children in L.A. is not the greatest idea in the world. I could tell as the more culture we absorbed from our church, 
the more it clashed with what was around us and what was at my workplace. And everything about what I stood for in the past was, was falling away, and I was taking on a new type of persona. We started looking for land, and we just wanted to find somewhere in Northern California, get away from those Dodgers, those stinking Dodgers, <laughs> and get back to the Giants, right? Yeah. I couldn't wait. <laughs> so we started looking for land up here, and uh, one of our trips brought us through Amador County on the way to Lake Tahoe to visit my folks who were staying there. And we saw this huge sign that said, Caldwell Banker, Vineyard Land. And so Tina wrote down that name or the number really, really quickly. We made a few appointments. And uh, we, saw, we saw this huge piece of land, this 90-acre land, that was four times more than we were willing to spend and four times bigger than we were looking for. Classic realtor. Any big realtors in here, you know? <laughs> Raise them up, right? Push them harder. And uh, it's right out of my sales manual. So it was, I understood what was going on. But it was too big. And uh, we fell in love with it, but it was just it was beyond my comprehension how we'd be able to handle something like this. So we kept looking for other land. Uh, as we came up empty over and over and over again, the realtor convinced me to maybe put a lowball offer on this piece of property just to see what happens. So about February of uh, 99, uh, we made an offer on this big, giant piece of property. And... Uh, it was a low-ball offer, and they regarded it as such, and they ignored me. And they were, in fact, pretty insulted, as I remember. And they wanted nothing to do with a guy like me, which was fine. So we had also had our house for sale down in Huntington Beach because we figured it was much easier to put an offer on a place and show that we were serious if we had our place up for sale, right? Um, but nothing came through on that. And we had, a, we had it for sale for about 10, 11 months. And, not, not, and this was a rising market in, at the time. So there was a lot of people looking for deals. And uh, so we should have had something, but nothing. We um, decided to take the summer off because the kids were very little. We lived at the beach. We wanted, you know, you know, it's like when you have an open house every single weekend and you got little kids at your house. You've got to clean everything up. It's got to be just sparkly. And we were tired of that. So we took the whole summer off, just enjoyed our summer. That Thanksgiving came... And out of the nowhere, I get a phone call from the selling agent. And she said, hi, this is so-and-so. Uh, are, are you still looking for land? I said, yeah, sure. She said, remember that property that you guys put an offer on? There's a chance the sellers might have changed their, their mind. Put another offer in, but just bump it up a little tiny bit. I'm like, I don't know. You know I'm not into this anymore right now, even though we're, we're still into it. But So I said, well, we'll, we'll, talk. we'll think it over. Thank you. So we hung up. And uh, so T and I went for a walk around the neighborhood at the beach. There was lots of houses for sale. We we're trying to get back understanding what the market could bear for our house. And we walked into this one little open house. We met this Christian couple who were married, and they were realtors, and they were holding an open house. And we started talking about, about our project and what we're thinking about doing, about moving out of Southern California, going to Northern California, maybe plant a vineyard. And... They were so ecstatic about that idea, especially the fact that we were taking our little kids, going back to the land. And they prayed for us right then and there on the spot. We thought, now that's, that's real. That's, this is, why didn't we think of this before? Let's, let's have these people be our realtors, somebody who, who, who trusts in God. So we signed the papers. It, within 24 hours, there was a, they're hammering a sign in our front door or in our front lawn, which is about this wide. 
because we're at the beach. And we went ahead and decided after praying about it, we'd go ahead and throw an offer up at the property in Placerville. And we got a, we got a counter offer. And even though we were still like this far away, at least we were talking now. So we bumped it up one more time, just a little ways, and they came down a long ways. Within four days, we got a full price offer at our house in Huntington Beach. Full price. 30-day extra. 30-day escrow. We couldn't believe it. Why didn't we find these people before? We weren't ready yet, obviously. Things were not ready. We put one more counter at the property in Placerville. They accepted it. Within seven days, the whole thing was finished. And we looked at each other like, are we really going to do this? I mean, just a week ago, we were like doing nothing. <laughs> and now, it's, all the doors flew wide open. Our house sold. They dropped their price. I'm not going to tell you how much. It was crazy how much they dropped their price. They were ready to sell. They were ready. We were ready. God was ready. Things were happening. So we, just, we uh, went to our home groups. We went to our, our men's groups. We told everything. We prayed about it. And we decided we're going for it. We're going to do this thing. And uh, we stepped through those doors. And we never looked back. We, uh, on a rainy day, on a Monday morning, Valentine's Day, we packed up our 20-foot U-Hauls and headed out towards Northern California. And one of our biggest concerns was leaving our church behind, leaving the people we depended on, leaving the men's group behind. Those guys were the, my backbone. And, and we, we talked a lot about it. In fact, we'd made several trips up here uh, in the meantime to try to find a church because when we got here, we wanted to land in a church. But we couldn't find anything that made any sense to us at all. So we're driving, I'm driving down I-5 in this driving rainstorm, and I see ahead of me, way off in the distance, after I drop off the grapevine and outside of Bakersfield somewhere, this other U-Haul way in the distance in the misty, foggy rain. And I start using that U-Haul as sort of a barometer, right? You know, when you're getting that kind of groggy driving and a piece of junk U-Haul, you, know, you, you just find something to make your attention hang on a little longer. And so I'm kind of dialed in with this U-Haul in front of me, and after a while I notice I'm catching up to it. And then it pulls away, and I catch up to it, pulls away, catch up. This goes on for like another hour, hour and a half. And at some point, you know, you want to catch it, right? <laughs> I'm going to catch this thing. So I pull up alongside of it, and as I pull up alongside of it, I look across the rain-stained windows, and the guy who's driving the other U-Haul looks over at me, and I look at him. You know, you just kind of lock eyes for a second. And drift back, and oh, I was just curiosity, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> and he takes off. That same day, somebody else was leaving Los Angeles. That very same day, in a 20-foot U-Haul, reinventing their lives from being educators in a law practice. It was Stephen Terry Barr leaving that day, also to Placerville. Isn't that a coincidence? One year later, Joan Nance would meet Pam Kemp at a grocery store. And Tina and Joan and our families were very close. And they invited us to church. And we stepped into B Street 14 years ago. And we've been going to church here ever since. God opening doors.
God opening doors. Amazing. We got, to, we got up here, and immediately, um, my company now is sold, and we have a big mortgage. Fortunately, it happened after we moved in, right? They let me go. So we realized God got us here just in time, but also we were pretty fearful. Um, we had a big mortgage, and now I only had a six-month um, parachute, if you will, after working 23 years with these guys, but they sold the companies. They didn't have any responsibility to me, they said, so that's fine. Um, but we had a big savings account, and that savings account was going to be used to put a vineyard in and hopefully to put a, a winery in. The realtors made it very clear to us, and they were very good friends of ours at this point. They were the only people we knew. And they even let us stay at their house for a couple of weeks while our well was being redone um, on Pleasant Valley. And my goal was to get the vineyard in as fast as possible. Um, and, and we just believed that we would have enough money to do it. So my, uh, the realtor's husband was a land guy, and he made mention to me, Frank, uh, I've walked that land several times over the years. He goes, there's a timber potential there. There's some, there's some trees in that, on that property, 90 acres. It had never been timbered in all these many, many years. And I didn't know anything about that. You know, I come from Huntington Beach. I come from Woodland. I don't know anything about trees. In fact, he goes, I'm going to have this forester, a friend of mine, call you. Jim Crawl is his name. And I go, a forest ranger? Why would a forest ranger call me? What am I going to do with that guy? I have no idea what a forester was. He shows up. I take him a walk around, show him my boundary lines, and he's just going, Frank, you have no idea. There's, there's a lot of timber on this land. And I said, well, okay. I don't know what that means exactly. He goes, well, I don't want to tell you anything this now. He goes, let me run some numbers, and I'll, I'll get back to you. I said, all right. So a couple weeks go by. I end up signing some papers for a timber harvest. And he promised me, they're not going to clear-cut anything. They're just going to take a tree out here, tree out there, tree here, tree there. And uh, we'll see how it goes. We start our vineyard construction, and all of a sudden, 911 happens. All the money that we had, all the money we brought, a lot of our stocks were tied to Enron, the dot-com blow-up. All of our stocks went down the tubes. All of our money that we thought we had was mostly all gone. And what money I did have left, I needed it just to pay our mortgage and to pay our bills. And all of a sudden, we looked at each other, Tina and I, and we realized, why would God bring us up here and dump us like this? All the things that happened, we started recounting in our mind, all the things that went, we went through between our marriage and, and all the doors he'd opened, the, everything. How did, we, how did we get to the spot and all of a sudden almost be broke? running out of money quickly. The checks started coming into the timber harvest, and I was writing checks out for the vineyard construction. I thought, if nothing else, we're going to get the vineyard in, and even if it takes our last dime, and if we have to sell a property, it'll be more valuable with the vineyard on it. And Tina even said to me one day, if nothing else, Frank, we'll just go back to L.A., we'll get an apartment. An apartment, really? And we'll start over. I go, okay, that's what we'll do if we have to. So that was our mindset. We were, we were ready to see this thing through. And as the checks started coming in from the timber project and the checks were going out to the vineyard construction, when all the dust settled, the money was almost identical. Identical. God had provided all the money for the vineyard. Within a few hundred dollars. It was, when, we, when we saw that, we realized he's in this for the long haul too all the way through. 
Another thing happened that was also very amazing to us. And uh, if I could have that first slide, Joe. There was an aerial of our, of our property. That's Pleasant Valley Road with the diagonal on the right. You see the slanted line on the top? In the 50s, they did a survey of our property. And they did it wrong, apparently. And in the 60s, they did a correction of an entire section. And a section, for those who don't, don't know, is one square mile. And when they change a section that's one square mile, it moves everybody's property lines ever so slightly. Our property had not changed hands since that time in the 50s. Otherwise, some things might have been rectified. But when we were sitting at the closing of our, of our um, title and everything else that we were doing, there was an old codger who was there who came in specifically to our closing of the, of the, of the parcel and the, and the sale to show me these off-centered lines. And he says... I haven't seen those kinds of lines in 25 years. He goes, you need to go to the surveyor's office and find out what they mean. Because in his mind, he knew exactly what they meant, but he wouldn't tell me. And so we sort of forgot about it. Our realtors mentioned it again to us right when the vineyard was getting completed and said, you should go check out those dotted lines and see what they mean. So you see the one line down the middle and then the diagonal line on the side. All we thought we bought was just the big giant rectangle. So it turned out Tina went and did some research, and she found out those were called historical parcels. When, when historical parcels are made, it's when a boundary line changes due to a change in section. And they're allowable historically. Our charter was frozen at the time. If anybody who's members of the county back in 2001, our charter was frozen, and they were trying to change the way you could divide parcels up. They were tired of having these little five-acre uh, ranch lands, and everything for agricultural purposes now, it has to be a 20-acre or 40-acre um, split, depend on what's going on with the zone. In any event, can I have the next slide, please, Joe? We did a boundary line adjustment. There's those dotted lines. We moved those because now the county would recognize them as real parcels. We didn't buy one parcel like we thought. We bought four parcels. God opening doors. We moved those three parcels to the bottom right, as you see. I sold the middle one to my father on a 1031 exchange. He happened to just be selling a parcel up in Monterey, and he was looking for a place to avoid taxes. That's my dad. But that was a huge benefit to me. It gave me cash flow, and he wouldn't give it to me any other way. It had to be a business transaction, and it had to make sense, not to me, but to him. And that made sense to him. That money that we got from that parcel number three was all I needed to keep afloat for another year while we'd get the winery started. We sold the bottom one, parcel four. When all the smoke cleared on that, that money that we got for that parcel ended up being exactly what we needed to build the winery. Thanks, Joe. Um, I'm here to tell you guys that uh, Jesus is alive. He loves you. He's active in our lives, and he's waiting for anybody who doesn't know him yet. And uh, all I can say is, what doors can he open for you guys? Thank you. Thank you.